Thank you very much for, uh, for the kind introduction. Welcome to everyone this evening. For those who have been with me the last 20, 25 minutes, you saw me sweating, and I guess you were also getting nervous. Uh, yeah, it, it took us indeed 28 minutes to get uh, the technique set up. Everything that I brought is now down there in the corner. So uh, you see how well prepared one can be. Anyways, welcome to the tree ring lecture this evening. I will not give too much of an introduction into what I call or we consider tree ring research, simply because under the umbrella of the Cambridge Science Festival, there are at least four of such introduction events at the Department of Geography. I don't know if you have attended those. If not, there is still a chance for the last one on Thursday evening. So what I will do tonight, let's see if that goes now. Yes, it does. I will give you a new perspective on treatment research. And uh, you see here, this is basically the nucleus of our research disciplines, tree rings. They provide environmental, abiotic, external information that have been recorded during tree growth. The beauty is they are annually resolved and absolutely dated. So this is something you obviously know. And I will focus a little bit more on these peripheral <coughs> circuits. These are examples of where I think modern tree ring research, as the title suggested, at the interface of archaeology, because we are using lots of archaeological material to build the chronologies, but also towards climatology, paleoclimatology, reconstructing climate change. And then the last uh, term in the title that was ecology, but it could also have been biology. So we're going to see how we can use tree rings to contribute to these various, various disciplines. And uh, although I said we won't make too much of an introduction, we still start with the easy, with the easy parts. Life forms. So there is a paradigm that we would separate between what we understand as larger, taller trees, smaller shrubs, even smaller draw shrubs, and perennial shrubs. So this is a very classic lifetime paradigm. Let's see if that is holding still. This is a picture I took in coastal East Greenland. So we are looking out to the North Atlantic. And then we turn around still searching for the forest, for the trees. <laughs> That's how it's looking inland. Not a lot. It took us a couple of years to spot something down there. At least it's green. It looks like vegetation. Then if you get closer, you are in the forest. <laughs> So that's a canopy, that's a stem, that's a root system. And as geographers, we are used to operate with a scale, a hand, right here. <laughs> so we all agree this is at least a small plant. But from a morphological and also from a plant physiological perspective, we cannot 
distinguish between this classical life form paradigm, tree, shrub, draw, shrub, herb. That doesn't work. I would also argue from an anatomical, structural perspective, this is a tree. Now you may argue, okay, okay, okay. We buy all this, but the tree ring researchers, the dendrochronologists want to go back in time. They need old trees. 240 tree rings on this very small stem. So this little rhododendron was growing at its most northern distribution limit in coastal East Greenland. By doing so, it's very sensitively recording small changes in growing season temperatures, and it is very old. One cell per growing season, one cell per year. Tiny, thin tree rings. And no, this is a thin, thin section. It's stained. It's actually double stained. We are coming back to that. It could be red, but it is blue. So keep the color in mind. OK, so I hope I was able now to show you a new perspective into tree ring research. Two minutes earlier, if I would ask you, what is a tree? Ah, you had something else in mind. Now you broadened your perspective. And if we do so, all of a sudden, we have a huge area, a so-called non-forested area, like the tundra biome, for instance, if we go towards the sub, uh, subtropics. So those areas where we don't have a common forest, but still perennial vegetation. And that matters also for the global carbon budget. It's about carbon residence time. If we assume this vegetation outside the forest or in the understory is on average two, three, four years old, we have a totally different turnover than if we are now learning there are maximum <coughs> plant ages up to 200 plus years. So that has an effect on the dynamics of the global carbon cycle. Okay, wood anatomy. So you saw the thin section. Without wood anatomy, we couldn't do such studies. A couple of years earlier, I would say 10, 10 years earlier, a tree ring talk wouldn't have included a component of wood anatomy. So there is a new trend, a tendency, that if we are open-minded, we are trying to include and consider wood anatomy, quantitative wood anatomy, because we need many of these samples, into so-called modern tree ring research of dendroclimatology. Okay, so I told you earlier, the slide you saw <coughs> supposed to be red, like this one. What we see here is one concrete tree ring, a conifer tree, like a larix cedar, maybe growing somewhere in the uh, subalpine uh, vegetation zone in the European Alps. What we see is one concrete tree ring that is consisting of many, many cell rows. This here is a previous tree ring. So the tree was growing from the left to the right. This row here is the first row of early wood cells. Big cells, thin cell walls. They are produced at the onset, at the beginning of the growing season. 
So if we stay in Cambridge, maybe we have to wait another one, two, three weeks, depending on the weather conditions, and we will have the onset, the phenological phase, and the first early wood cells will be produced. That goes relatively fast, I would say a couple of weeks, until around here, and then the process is slowing a little bit, and there is a smooth transition in Ladex decidua that might look a little bit different if we would use a pine tree, for instance, into the late wood. <coughs> you see the difference. Late wood cells are much smaller and have thicker cell walls. So the reason for the early wood cells is to enable the tree to transport water and nutrients from the root system into the canopy and actually also backwards, so there's a daily rhythm whereas the late wood cells are needed as a skeleton to grow tall. And everything <coughs> we see here is red. We are using a double staining, very simple, astra blue and safranin, the later to make it red. Everything that is red is lignified. Okay, that's how a tree ring looks, that is wood. Now I show you another ring. I'm almost 100% convinced that you haven't seen such a ring before. You may have <coughs> seen thousands of such rings, lignified. And that one somehow failed in lignification. This is what we call a blue ring. Previous ring, early wood cells again, late wood cells, and then a lack of, of lignin deposition. <coughs> Indicated by the lack of red color. Everything that is blue is not lignified. This is what we call a blue ring. And just now, in Cambridge, at the tree ring unit, we have experts, that's not myself, that are investigating these blue rings. They occur synchronized at some upper tree line sites, for instance, following large volcanic eruptions. So we assume that there is a temperature threshold during the growing season under which lignification stops. And if that turns out to be the case, this would be a new proxy for climatic cooling extreme events. If we learn more from experiments in laboratories, so if we are cooling root zone or ambient temperatures, and we can really trace where is the threshold, the so-called biological zero, maybe 5.3 degrees over a certain period of time, we would be able to really reconstruct absolute summer temperatures. Now, that is bringing us back to the very first slide, Greenland, far beyond the northern tree line. Small plants, if we cut them, take a cross section, it is blue. Yes, and now we know why. It's simply too cold to lignify. What we are now doing with a colleague who is now a visiting fellow at the department, Alan Trivilaro, probably the expert worldwide in doing such research. We are putting together a global map of several thousand plants 
where we have thin sections, double stained, and what we are seeing, this is just ongoing work, we are seeing, so we have the latitudinal distribution of this map you saw earlier, and the altitude, the black line roughly represents the global tree line position, and we see in blue plants like here, from Svalbard, from Greenland, or from the upper tree line, they are not liquefied. So what we are introducing is a mechanistic explanation why do we have actually a tree line, one of the most fascinating biogeographic margins worldwide. Yes, to grow tall, you have to lignify. If it's too cold and you can't lignify anymore, you stay small. That's why such plants can go beyond the altitude. Okay, host associations. <coughs> now you are aware of what we are seeing here. A thin section of a conifer tree. And I ask you, how many tree rings do you see? One, two, three complete ones. Is that correct? It's, it, it's not bad, but we can do better. And now keep in mind, if we would just cut the wood without the thin section, without the staining, without the wood anatomy, we wouldn't see this ring. This one here. One Hollywood cell, one Lakewood cell, not more. This ring is super, super small. Great chance to miss it. But we found it. <laughs> it is a result, or it is, it has been caused and used by insect defoliation. Larix, Larix decidua, subalpine uh, conifer species in the European Alps, and there is Cyrafera diniana, a moth that is that has cycled every eight to nine years population outbreaks. They are massive. And these insects are feeding up on the needles of their host trees, larynx. If that happens, quite early in summer, just the first cell row has been produced. So we talk about May, June. No photosynthesis anymore, because the needles are gone. The tree is suffering, not dying. Next year, the ring looks better. And what we did, so you see, it is the researcher who is actually defining between signal and noise. If we want to reconstruct summer temperatures, this is noise, right? If an insect comes, is feeding up on the needles, there is a growth depression, this is not a cold year. It's a problem if we want to reconstruct summer temperatures. But if we say we are ecologists and we want to understand how regular these cyclic mass outbreaks occur, all of a sudden the noise becomes a signal. So now we are population ecologists. And what we did, we used tree rings again. This is present, 2010. And we go into medieval times, 1,200 years back in time. And we see 
we have very cyclic, very regular insect outbreaks reconstructed from the growth patterns in the host trees. This paper is more than yeah, 15 years old by now. The last mass outbreak in the Alps of Zagafera Liniana, the large partners, occurred in the year 1981, so in the early 80s. At that stage, we were not able to explain, we called it the collapse of the cyclic outbreak system, simply due to warm temperatures, but we couldn't understand it. These pictures are from last year. I was already in Cambridge after working 14 years in Switzerland. I went back, and the insect returned. <laughs> <laughs> the last outbreak, 1981, then almost 40 years afterwards, again, mass outbreaks. This large tree here, that is in summer, it's brownish. It should be, uh, it should be green, the needles. And that's how a mass outbreaks look. So, and now I show you something you know better and you still remember like I do. We don't want to get that this year, right? It's a beast from the east. So when I went back to Switzerland last year, I heard, ah, the outbreak is uh, back. It's the first time since 35 years. I thought, okay, we never ever looked at winter temperatures trees are growing, the growing season, and so on and so on. But I had this in mind. We started for the first time to look at winter temperatures. We had outbreaks 54, 63, 72, 81. Very cyclic, eight to nine years. During all of these outbreaks, we had a negative phase of the North Atlantic oscillation the main mode that is controlling winter temperatures over the British Isles, over Scandinavia, over the European Alps, winter temperatures. And then the next outbreak, one, two, three, we missed them. We couldn't find them. They were missing. And they coincide with NAO plus positive faces, whereas the new one again flips into and coincides with a negative phase of the North Atlantic. So what we find, winter temperatures are controlling, and now it's interesting, not the cyclicity. The cyclicity never stopped. That's what we wrote in the first paper, a collapse of the cyclic system. Just the outbreak intensity was reduced, or we couldn't find it. Now I explain you very quickly how it is. We have cool winters. That means we have the reduced egg mortality. More eggs are surviving over winter. And the gear part is longer. So the hatching of the eggs is perfectly synchronized with backburst of the needles. All the kids are coming, they are hungry, the food is ready. And cooler temperatures means the insect 
outbreak epicenters are at lower elevations. Assume you are insect, it's getting a little bit warmer. The first thing you do if you are living in the European Alps, you just go a little bit higher. It's getting cooler, just fly down. If you continue the scale, it's getting warmer and warmer and warmer, they just fly up into the upper Trina ecotone and maybe even above. They are able to respond to temperature changes very quickly, whereas the host trees cannot. And that is what we call ecological mismatch. So different response rates of different ecological subsystems or components. Okay, all reconstructed with tree rates. Let's continue up. So we are now at, we, the last example was at the upper tree line, right? And now we go higher, still searching for rings. Maybe we are less strict with the trees. <laughs> <laughs> you see the rings, huh? They are beautiful. Each year, the horn is growing and is distinct by an annual increment. It's the alpine ibex, probably the most iconic ungulate species across the European Alps, or definitely. This is a male ibex. We are particularly interested in male ibex <coughs> because they have larger weapons to have higher reproductive success. That's all. So, if the animal is doing well, if growth conditions are optimal, the animal will invest in its hormones. These increments are measured, again, not by us, but by gatekeepers in Switzerland. Swiss people measure everything. <laughs> <laughs> they measure everything, and they measure it very precise. <laughs> so we have eight populations in the eastern Swiss Alps. It's a canton de Risson, Graubünde. The good thing is that if you are an Ibex, and you are born in the population or in the colony eight, you're going to die there. They don't move between. This is good for us. It's like if we would go out and call trees, the tree is not moving. We are able to develop a site chronology. And here we did the same for these eight populations. The ibex, all of them are harvested between two and a half and three and a half thousand meters elevation, so above the tree line. Now, these red lines show me annual horn growth per population if we would develop these chronologies from trees, they wouldn't look so coherent. This is a fantastic picture. <coughs> and it shows there are years where horn growth is on average increased. There are years where horn growth is on average reduced. When I asked to get this data, the canton told me, so these are white biologists, they said, sure, you can have the data. 
but there is certainly no signal in. <laughs> we still looked at it, and it's fantastic. So if we are now, this, we talk about 8,400 uh, meta so massive sample size. If we are splitting the data set into high elevation, low elevation, young animals, old animals, it doesn't matter, the signal persists. So the data set is so big that we are able to see if the signal is robust. And we can explain it. Again, staying in winter, early spring, March to May, summer temperatures, again, triggered by the North Atlantic oscillation. If it's getting warmer, there is an earlier snow melt. If there is an earlier snow melt, there is an earlier onset of the vegetation period above the tree line. This is the main food resource, nutrients, quality and quantity are increased, and that is reflected in horn growth. This alpine coast food is the main nutrient source for these animals. And just see what we have here. It's not red, it's blue, and it's reflected here. So you see, this is a chain, North Atlantic oscillation, controls winter and spring temperatures, different changes in phenology and snow melt are then reflected in the vigor, in the conditions of the alpine holidays. We figured that out by applying tree ring methods to horn growth. Now, going all the way from above the tree line to the surface, there are many, many thousands of mycorrhiza fungi species. So those fungi that are living in a symbiotic relationship with plants, perennial plants, like trees. And we are interested to understand how climatic conditions, temperature, precipitation, and so on, are affecting the phenology, the diversity, and the productivity of different fungal species, either directly or indirectly through the host tree. This is the species we are most interested in. <coughs> Tuba, is a truffle. This is a picture from what we did was an archaeological excavation to see what's happening below ground. This is Tuba estivum, the Bogarty truffle. And now we go a little bit south to northeastern Spain. This is a plantation of the black truffle, the Perigord truffle, Tuba melanosporum. What you see, plantations are big. Irrigation matters. These are evergreen uh, Mediterranean oaks, Arcus index. If you zoom out, it's massive, right? People are investing, investing, investing. Business is growing. And so on. And so on. <laughs> on this picture, you see again what I said earlier. Key to this whole thing is, Irrigation is a water reservoirs. The economy is growing. We call that mycotourism. Sure, you are paying directly for the truffle fruit body if you eat that. But you may also visit, visit these areas, stay overnight, 
go out for dinner, and so on and so on. So it's a huge sector that is growing. And I asked the people, can we have data on truffle production to see what are the climatic drivers? What do we have to learn? And they said, mm, well, difficult. We may get estimates on the production, but don't believe in it. <laughs> sure, they are so expensive. There is a huge black market. They are trading around. No one will tell you how the production was. So forget about it. But okay, if you want to, you get it. Second problem is almost all of these plantations are nowadays irrigated. So they put water in the system. Do not expect a climatic signal. It's disturbed. The same habit or the same pattern is following the, following the Albeck story. We started to look at the data. And what you see here, average for Spain, northeastern Spain, average for southern France, and average for Italy over the last 40 years. So the last harvest season is 2017, 18. Going back to 1970, in each of the regions, in the dashed brown line, truffle production. Truffle production occurs, or truffles, black truffles, are harvested between November and December, January. So it's winter. What you see on top, in blue, it's summer precipitation. June, July, August, natural precipitation variability in these three regions. And you see it's perfectly, perfectly in line with the travel production. These are the temporal relationships. These are the spatial ones. Travel data come from this area that is indicated by the green dashed line. That's where we explain the highest variance with precipitation. Same accounts for here, and for France, and for Italy. So what we are able to do when the summer is over, around August, September, and we know how much precipitation was falling between June and August, we can calculate a model and predict the truffle harvest about half a year later. That is one thing. It maybe helps to stabilize the market. But even more important, the message we have is the current irrigation systems are absolute inefficient. People are putting water in. When? Probably the timing is wrong. The doses may be wrong. We don't really know because the people don't really tell us what they are doing. But if the data tell us that whatever they do, it has no effect on the harvest. <laughs> and this is a huge, huge business. And water will become even more important, competition, and predictive drought, in particular in the Western Mediterranean Basin. OK, what we are doing now, therefore, in response, we are trying to understand when are the fruit bodies growing, throughout the entire year. So we are doing these archaeological excavations every three weeks throughout the entire year when people think there's nothing going on in the soil. 
what we found are food bodies. This is the glema, the enzyme, that is white. It's supposed to be black. It's black as the spores are right. Those can't be detected by dogs. If you wouldn't dig, you think nothing is going on. So we want to understand how fast are they growing, when are they growing. We have tree people who detect growth rates everywhere. This is the surface. This is the surface of a black truffle, tuba uh, melanosporum. And you see, you can see by eye that you can synchronize these lines. I think it's a dangerous. Who is the vector? Who is responsible for spore dispersal? A normal mushroom, spores are dispersed by wind. So the only reason why the truffle is so tasty and has so much aroma is it depends on some animal, on someone, some insect, to be digged out to disperse the spores. We don't think these are wild spores. These are actually insects. This has an effect on dispersal rate. And now, you probably all know where this is, bringing us back to Cambridge, Botanic Garden, founded 846, John Henslow, the beautiful Botanic Garden. So far, people ignored the below ground life science. This is me, but even more important, this is our dog. <laughs> Lucy is a truffle dog. She's the only dog who's allowed to enter the botanic garden. <laughs> and we go every three weeks throughout the entire year. We find lots of truffles. And the experiment is we want to understand who are the potential host trees. If we go out in the forest here, we have a little bit of oak maybe some beach and a hazel. That's it, if we are lucky. But here, the same soil conditions, the same climatic conditions, but approximately 2,000 tree species. So this is our experiment to understand who are the potential hosts and are the life cycles and the phenological phases of truffle growth different if it is a Fago sylvatica, or just next to it, an evergreen Quercus legs. Okay. Yeah. No, you expect some truffles now. You don't have one. <laughs> okay, radiocarbon dating. Now, quickly. If trees are growing at the lower tree line, drought induced tree growth, or if they grow at the upper tree line, they have distinct growth patterns. These help us to date. These are three oak discs. And you see your eyes are directly focusing on these three lines, right? Not focusing on this here. These three lines help us in the so-called pointer years. We would know, OK, these three oaks were grown at the same time, at the same period. This is called cross-dating. This allows us to build these very, very long chronologies. We start with the living trees, and then we extend it with historical wood, with archaeological material, and so on, back and back in time. So an example from the Pyrenees, upper tree line, living, penis uncinata, dead wood. We can build chronologies 
with both of these sources that go several hundred years back in time. And then there is a lake. It's a trap. Look, full of wood. Cross-dating allows us to absolutely date these sources. Or we stay in the Swiss Alps. We don't need the dead material. We don't need the lake. We have very old historical buildings. That's the colleges here. We can date those. We can also date archaeological material. I'm showing you this example here. Any idea how old that is? Look, it's well crafted, right? It's well done. So how old is it? 800,000? 1,000. 1,000. 1,000. 1,000. 1,000. 1,000. 1,000. 1,000. 1,000. 1,000. It's 2,000 years, wait, 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 wait. 2,000 years older than the invention of iron. This well is 7,200 years old, 5,200 years BC. That is called the uh, linear band keramic. So the first early Neolithic settlers that transformed from hunter-gatherers into farmers. Fantastic. Absolutely dated. This is wood coming out of the permafrost in northeastern Siberia, absolutely dated by dendrochronology. If it is eroded and if it is drained via the big river systems into the North Atlantic and then deposited somewhere along the shorelines, that it was actually the reason why we started to work in northeastern Greenland, to trace the origin of Arctic driftwood, this is absolutely dated in an ideal case. And the last example, of course, what I want to show you what are the limits. This is the oldest material so far absolutely dated at all. This is a tree that is 13,000 13, years old. So it was growing at the end of the last ice age, at the transition into the early Holocene, in the Allerud, Berlin Allerud, so before the Younger Dryas Code spell. Anyways, I'm telling you all these things. Absolutely dated, and so on and so on. You have to believe that, right? <laughs> there is no way to prove it. You have to believe in the community skills, maybe in my skills, or in some other researcher skills. How can we control that? Cross-dating? It's very difficult. Just keep the very small ring in mind after the insect defoliation. Okay. Since about 10 years, we have these machines. That is the latest generation of an accelerated mass spectrometer to measure C14 radiocarbon. This now fits easily in this room. Easily, you see that. 10 years or 15 years earlier, we would have needed a whole sports field to do that. But more importantly, these machines run faster and just utilize a very small amount of cellulose. 
So what we can do, the message here is we can produce C14 dates much better and faster and cheaper than we could have done 10 years earlier. The second thing is, since about 15 years, or no, five years, we know about solar proton events. So the sun is releasing energy from the surface rapidly, and that is causing an annual, so a very distinct annual spike in the C14 concentration of the Earth's atmosphere. If an organism is growing, during such an event, it will record this C14 spike. Pretty simple. We know of two in the last 2,000 years. One in the year 775, <coughs> the other in the year 992-993. What we did, we asked our colleagues all over the world, ah, do you have actually wood from a chronology you may build or developed 20 years ago, from Tasmania, from uh, Chile, from northern Scandinavia, I said, yeah, we may still have some of this wood in the storage. Yeah. Why do you ask? Mm, would be good to get a hand on this wood. <laughs> OK, OK, but wait a minute. Why? <laughs> you know why? We want to check if the chronology you developed 20 years ago, 10 years ago, it's actually absolutely dated. What do you think you get as a response? <laughs> People all over the world, all Turing labs, went back to their storage, put these wood samples out. Look how they look. Maybe something like this. Maybe a core like this. This is a core from the car core, Juniper. There is stuff from Tasmania and so on. And then we're sending it over. So we were able to generate a global network of 44 sites that are spanning these two events with physical wood. And I think that was the first and biggest success of this study. It showed just the scientists were very open. They trusted in their method, but they were also open and not shy if there would have been a mistake. The second result is this one. All, all of the chronologies we received work from were absolutely dated. This is just fantastic. So you see these two events, 770 to 780, and you see the spikes, the blue lines are those on the northern hemisphere, the red lines are those on the uh, southern hemisphere. These are the means and then the individual lines. And what you also can see is the amplitude, so the strength of the event. The early one was larger than the second one. OK, volcanic eruptions. Iceland was settled 877, about. We don't really know that. From the time of first permanent settlement, we know a lot about that. <coughs> so our history has been written down. But if we compare that to what we know for England, for Central Europe, it's actually a very short history of about 1,200 years. It's really not old. What do we know about Iceland before? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know these are the slides you like. <laughs> Some years earlier, the Katla volcano in southern Iceland, the smaller eruption, 
the riverbed changed. So this riverbed became dry, and what we found for our colleagues on Iceland is a forest. I'm using the term forest here. We found an ancient relic forest on Iceland. Okay. The first settlers harvested all of the forest quite immediately. So this must be pre-settlement. Settlement is around 870. That's how these trees look. They have bark, birch trees. We don't have tree ring chronology on Iceland. There's no forest. But we have this relic forest here from the Kapler complex. There are tree rings on. There are approximately 150 tree rings on these birch trees. You know what we did, right? We just extracted cellulose from each individual ring and measured the C14 content. Fingers crossed. And we found the 775 event. This is luck. But it's also a coincidence that we just know about these things, that we collaborated with partners with the C14 lab, that we had our connection to Iceland, and so on. So things very well came together at a good period of time. And then all you have to do is you count the amount of rings, the number of rings, from 775 to the outermost ring. The outermost ring was completed. So late wood was formed, bark was on. We know the forest was killed after October, after the growing season, 822, and before the onset of the next growing season, which is approximately March, April there in southern Iceland of 823. So this is now the oldest absolutely dated volcanic eruption of the northern latitudes. This is important on its own, but it's also important for different disciplines. The next step one should do, and we did, you revisit the ice cores from Greenland. They are not annually dated at that time. You search for something like this, glass shard, cryptotephra, you find it, and you have time bound for the ice cores. So you think what we did? We combined evidence from various different disciplines. Human history, the last example. That was on my purple flag. It's beautiful. This is a frost ring. We know when this ring was formed, 536 AD or Common Era. So it's almost 1,500 years old. And in the summer, in the early summer, a very severe frost event occurred. The tree was already pumping up water and nutrients. The early wood cells were full of water. It was freezing, expanding, thawing. Cell walls collapsed. This year is important for paleoclimatology because it indicates the onset of the so-called late Antiguan life age. These are two summer temperature reconstructions from the European Alps and from the inner Eurasian Altai Mountains. Present, back to 
Roman times, so 2,000 years. The most striking event is the cold period in the 6th century, starting exactly in the year 536 due to a large volcanic There is actually a cluster of three eruptions, 536, 540, 547. If I would ask you or any scientist when did the Little Ice Age start? You don't get an answer. That is somehow a diffuse period between an even more diffuse medieval warming and the recent warming. Somewhere in between is the Little Ice Age, or the so-called Little Ice Age type events. No one can tell you when the Little Ice Age started because we don't know why it started. That is a fundamental difference to what we introduced here as a late antique ice age, the Lania, where we exactly know the trigger of this cluster of large volcanic eruptions. And then this information, temperature, growing season, we are providing to the historians, and then the historians are looking what happened actually in this period of time. It was very dynamic, large-scale migrat migrations from the Eurasian steppe Bells both into the old Chinese dynasties, but also into the old world, uh, Eastern Roman Empire. We had the outbreak of the Justinian plague, 541. We had the rise and the demise of uh, the Turk Empire, and so on and so on. And now, because we also talked about archaeology, what we want and what we need is to bring much more evidence together from the archaeologists, from climate modelers, from ancient uh, DNA, genetics, and so on and so on, to make this picture much more comprehensive and complete for the sixth century cooling. Likely, or most likely, the coldest period in the last 2,000 years, large scale. If we go a little bit closer, that's the last example, I promise, Mongol invasion into Central Europe, 1241, the Mongols passed the Carpathian Arc, went into the Hungarian plain. That was at the time when their empire had the largest spatial extent. Just half a year later, half a year later, they withdrew, they went back. Interestingly, they took a southern route rather than going the same way back. This is a church, not a fortress, it's a church in Slovakia. If you look up, it looks very robust. These churches have been built in response to the Mongol invasion. So they are dating in the second half of the 13th century. They contain wood. This wood is of highest interest for us because it was growing <coughs> during the period when the Mongols invaded Central Europe or the Hungarian plain. And what we are now able to do for the first time is to reconstruct both summer temperatures and summer precipitation at annual resolution and at high spatial explicitly. So we see four years before and during the invasion, 38, 39, 40, 41, warmer temperatures, 
less precipitation. And then, what is not a dramatic shift, right? it's a systematic one towards cooler and particularly wetter conditions, exactly in this part of Europe, which is Hungary. And everyone already went to Hungary and knows how the soil conditions are, understands that these systematic changes, they don't have to be dramatic, would influence the decision making, especially if you are a horse based on. Okay, so that's it for tonight. Lots of examples all around tree ring research, and I hope that you now see tree ring research is a little bit more than just counting rings. <laughs> and we are able to provide data and methods to other disciplines, and we are actively trying to engage and make contributions. So thank you very much. You are more than welcome to uh, ask questions. We can do some personal research on the South Germany. How do you South Germany? No, from Bonn. Bonn. That's interesting. So how did you become interested in students? I studied geography, and at that time in Bonn also, and at that time there was just a small group doing tree research, and I always found it uh, easy, so it's something uh, everyone can do, so I thought that's something I should do. <laughs> it's not very difficult, and uh, yeah, it combines lots of things. I, mean, I think wood is just, by definition, a beautiful archive, and then there are possibilities to reconstruct fire histories to contribute to climate, climate or the global change today and so on and so on. So there are actually various ways in where you can go and I thought that's yeah. it's not the lack of lignification, is that because you the lignification yeah. lack of it? Is that because the enzymes for it are not active? Or are they not expressed? Or is it a, a purely chemical thing? I don't know. I don't, I, I simply don't know. I, we also, we don't have proof of concept that it is indeed temperature, but everything, everything, various independent lines of evidence suggest that there must be a temperature threshold, but what exactly plant physiologically is going on or is missing, I can't answer that. I'm just thinking about how you can go back in time with this. I wonder where you can get tree rings from petrified wood or even from, from fossilized um, tree remains. One theoretically could, yes. So if you have a, 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 a fossilized uh, wood sample of stone, you, you could see rings, but that is not really helping us a lot. So what we always need, and maybe that came a little bit short here, is to connect these samples to the present recent period. That's where we have uh, meteorological data measured. That's where we basically understand and build the model. So these chronologies we work with, I would say in 95% in all, all cases, are continuous. And, and with the if we would enter geological timescales, we could just say, uh, yeah, but we could identify the species. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was. Um, yes. Um, you were talking about um, data with volcanic eruptions, but referring to the outer. Trees. Now, um, 
what surprises me is that the outer rings should be intact after all the time since the event occurred. How? How does that happen? There are, there are two ways of how we usually use three rings to contribute to the dating of volcanic eruptions. Let's start with the easier one. So we have the tree ring chronology. So we have growth patterns up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. <coughs> they are induced by summer temperature conditions. So if they are down, that would mean a cold summer, like 1816 after Tambora, the year without summer. So we could see how that fits perfectly. That's also how we would date some islands in 1258, 57. This example here on Iceland was that basically the volcanic eruption had a, a, an effect on the climate system or not, that doesn't really matter in this case, but what it did, that was more like a geomorphic event, it buried a forest. And these trees were perfectly preserved with the bark, so the bark was on, so the outermost ring was intact. And that is a little bit that we, it's an indirect effect of the volcano one could say. It is a very unique example. We are actually trying to do the same now. You might be interested with the Lacha See, that was Europe's largest volcanic eruption that occurred around 13,000 years ago, 12,900 years, in the Eiffel, so 40 kilometers southwest of Bonn, former capital, the largest European volcano. And we now just went back to find old trees that have been buried by the eruption and the fallout with the outcome experience. This last example that you gave of the church which had the wood and you used that wood to um, get the examples, how do you, can you see from that cut out wood where the tree rings are to get dates for the year? From which example? From the, uh, the example of the church. The church, uh, yes. And so that wood is already cut in. Yes. It, what, what, what you need if you work with historical material like here, <coughs> you would try to find a piece of, 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 of a beam or so where the outermost ring is on. Okay. That helps you to date, the f to give the felling date. If you don't have that, it also doesn't matter. What you do is you take a core, an increment core, or you cut the beam to get ideally an S long as possible radius with as many rings as possible. Then you measure these rings, wide, narrow, wide, narrow, wide, narrow, <coughs> and you try to overlap it with some reference you have. So in the beginning, the first beam doesn't help you at all. You go to the second one, and you hope that they were growing at the same time. And then you, you, get, you get these patterns, and, and that is a principle, I don't know if it works, but we can also go to another question. Are there more questions? Yeah. We take a sample from a living tree without seriously damaging or killing it. Yes. That's what we usually do. So if we, we sample hundreds and thousands of living trees and we do not kill them, what we do is we take an increment core, it's usually five millimeters thick, just go in, go out, that's it. So the tree is not at all suffering. Yeah? Uh, have you ever predicted the pretty temperature with the actual 
um, that, that uh, concerns what we call dendroclimatology. So we measure these things. We need the living trees that we have an overlapping period to the instrumental measurements, so the metallurgical period, right? The last 150 years, maybe for Europe, or the last 50 years for most parts of the rest of the world, where the instrumental periods are shorter. And in this period, we are actually trying to build the model. And as you said, there are some trees that do better, there are some species that are less good. The principle behind is we always try to go to the species-specific distribution limits. So if we go to the upper tree line in the Alps or the northern tree line in Scandinavia, small changes in growing season temperature are limiting. There is always enough water. This is what limits growth temperatures. But if we go to Morocco in the Atlas Mountains, it's warm enough. It's the amount of soil moisture that is available. So you see, depending on what we want to reconstruct, hydroclimate or temperature, we use different sites and different species. And I'm just showing this here because it comes back to your question. This is the principle of cross-dating. So if we have these unique growth patterns, we just have to have enough overlap to so-called reference materials. There was another. Just, um, can I just say you're very welcome to continue uh, uh, with questions, but if anyone needs to go as advertised in the program at seven o'clock to catch buses or whatever, then you're then you're welcome to do now. But please carry on. I've been part of the policy as between written
We went into the construction and we found subfossil wood. We say subfossil because it's not fossilized, it was, was a stem coming out. In, in lay packages, 
great great picture. In the city of Zurich, we, it was with the bicycle about five minutes from the institute. <laughs> and we knew, wow, that must be old because it's, and it's perfectly preserved. It was one step. We went back to the institute and started to celebrate <laughs> the entire weekend. It was a fantastic find. <laughs> and we continued to observe this construction site. And at the end of the, of the summer, so three months later, we had 260 or so. I'm saying we celebrated because one was already such a great thing. And now this is the oldest forest we are actually working with. So we have 260 stamps. It's all Pinos Celestes. So we took ancient DNA actually for the first time out of the sap wood to know what it is. And the idea is that these are, were really indeed the first pine trees, pioneering species, that invaded and started to grow north of the Alpine Arc after the last ice age. So the glaciers were just retreating. The Zurich Lake was formed by all these pre-Alpine lakes, and, and the pines started to grow. Oaks were still in their Mediterranean refugee areas. So it's, it's fantastic. And it is, it's a paradox for us. We say, ah, it was a very dynamic period of time, so this late glacial period without a lot of vegetation cover and a lot of geomorphic activity, so these trees have to be buried. They were buried, and they were growing under the slope of a hill, perfectly preserved. And at the same time, that's why I've said a dilemma, some of these trees were four to 500 years old. This indicates that stability. Yeah? So it's both. It's, it's, a, it's a climax forest type with 400-year-old trees. And at the same time, we had enough activity to bury these stems and kill the trees when they were buried. It's fantastic. OK. So thank you again for...